0: Welcome to the 204th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host,
1: Kevin Toefel,
0: And we have an amazing show for you today. We're going to be talking about, for Apple, what comes after the iPhone. I have a pretty good guess. And we've got some bad news about IFT, our favorite way to connect to services on the internet. Osram, the lighting company, is for sale, and we're going to talk about New smart circuit breakers. This is Leviton's consumer-oriented news, but we may talk a little bit about it in the industrial space because why the heck not? We've got some news about another platform going to NB IoT, and Kevin has some thoughts about how Google can compete against our buddy Amazon. So all this, and we'll hear from sponsor Urban X about one of their startups, and we're going to also hear from the CEO of Silicon Labs. Tyson Tuttle, who is our guest this week. He'll be talking about radios and what happens when giant tech companies keep buying all the startups in this ecosystem. Stay tuned for all of this. But now, a word from another one of our sponsors. Western Digital. Western Digital builds data solutions that enable the world to solve its biggest challenges safer cities, smarter vehicles, a faster Internet of Things. So join Western Digital at Embedded World 2019 as they showcase their open source technology roadmap, demonstrate their industrial and edge solutions, and unveil the newest addition to their portfolio. Woo! Find out more at westerndigital.com. Okay, Kevin, let's get this started with Apple. Some some exciting news that's been kind of dribbling out over the last, well, if we look long-term, it's been dribbling out (laughs) for a while. But in the last week or so, we saw a couple of news announcements. One was that Sam Jadala, who was actually the founder of the Auto Smart Lock, I don't know if you guys remember, I definitely talked to Sam about this. It was a $700 connected lock that came out Oh, maybe a year, two years ago. It was hugely expensive, very pretty, very substantial, but doomed. And then, so he's gone to work at Apple now in their home division. What also has happened is John Gianandrea has been promoted to the executive team and they also pushed out Siri's voice assistant. Now, Gianandrea had come to Apple from Google and he was in charge of some of their AI efforts, which people believe will help Apple kind of gain some ground there, because for a while, they've not been awesome. <laughs> Andrea was at Google doing machine learning, and now he's Apple's SVP of machine learning and AI strategy. He reports directly to Tim Cook. That was a change that happened. And so basically what we're seeing is the elevation at Apple of AI and machine learning to be a more critical topic.
1: Which so. is much later than its competitors, I would say.
0: Yes. So Also, Apple just bought a company, PullString Technologies, which used to be a company called Toy Talk. It was these former Pixar executives. Whenever I think Pixar, I happen to think Apple because there's synergies there. There's executive back and forth.
1: I think Uh, Toy Story, but okay.
0: Yes. Okay, fine. (laughs) But Toy Talk, what they did and what PullString does is the idea was to create a compelling narrative, a voice-generated narrative. Around in a relationship between a person. So it was designed for kids initially, and they were going to build basically toys and license their technology to toy makers. So kids could create a relationship around Barbie or a Disney character toy or whatever. And they did do that. Yes. Yeah. That is true. That's something they achieved.
1: (laughs) Right. That Hello Barbie doll is, you know, powered by the pull string technology.
0: So with all this, everyone's like, oh, Apple's moving beyond the iPhone, which makes sense. Here's what I think is going to happen. I think Apple's moving beyond the iPhone into healthcare. And there's Mm -hmm. a couple reasons I think this. One, Apple has said, Tim Cook has said that healthcare will be the biggest thing that Apple has to offer humanity. But Apple has bought a succession of companies that give medical quality data. You see it with the Apple Watch. And since Apple was never really awesome at the cloud and creating services, I think this is an area where it can take things that were a weakness and turn them into a strength. Apple's data privacy, that is basically it turning its weakness, its bugs into a feature that people want. But it's actually a really good feature for healthcare. And I I have talked about this in the past. So there's that aspect of it. There's a lot of patents showing Apple doing some cool things. And I think if you pull all of that together, when I talk to doctors about Telemedicine and home health monitoring with IoT gadgets, you need a couple things. You need reproducibility and trust in the actual data underlying these devices. So you have to know that this is not digital snake oil, right? You have to know this is a real possible benefit, and this has to be proven and tested over time. Apple will take that time. We've seen Mm -hmm. it already with their efforts with the Apple Watch and AFib and some things like that. Two, the products have to be easy to use. Doctors cannot tell. A 60 year old person to go home and buy this and connect it to Bluetooth. Like, it is hard for someone to get like a connected blood pressure cuff. Okay. That is actually for many of our listeners, it's probably pretty easy to set up. That's actually not easy for everyone. So, any product in the medical world has to be easy to use. Apple is wonderful at that. And three, medical technology has historically been scary. It's felt like technology. But if you look at Apple's history with, the iPhone and making technology approachable. And you think about things like buying, polstering and some of their other acquisitions, they could make technology very warm and friendly in their medical devices, which will make people want to use it. I think of Apple in medical. I think of something like, I don't know if you remember or saw the Master of None episode with that Japanese robotic seal. Do you know what I'm talking about, Kevin?
1: I didn't see it, no. Sorry.
0: (laughs) Okay. The seal is called Paro. It's a therapeutic baby robot seal for old people. And it was so funny because, you know, in the show, he's like, What the heck is this thing? Ah." And then by the end, he's like, I love it. I love it. But (laughs) I see Apple being able to do something, not necessarily a robotic baby seal that old people love, but being able to create a product. That is imbued with technology that people want to hold, want to sleep with, want to bring into their everyday lives and have it like gather this data and make sense of it.
1: Or it's actually invisible to the user, meaning the ECG in the watch that you never see right. or in AirPod 2 the headphones that we expect later this year to have health sensors and such that you would never know.
0: Exactly. So I think and... Here's the other reason I think this is happened. This is a good place for Apple to go. Medical technology, not just stupid wellness technology like me and my Fitbit, which I love, but that's not essential, right? Apple goes after essential technologies. And if you think about music, music was an essential technology that drove you know, the creation of the iPod and then was filtered into the iPhone. iTunes was a huge moneymaker for Apple. They recognize What's essential? And honestly, the way that I love them, but the way that voice services in the home, the digital speakers are playing out, they feel still more like a gimmick than something essential. So I understand mm-hmm. why Apple may have been like, I feel like almost like, hey, what if they just like toss the HomePod out there as part of their music effort and was like, eh, yeah, you know, throw that out there to make Wall Street happy. We've got a digital speaker. I don't care. While they focus on something that's real, it is actually going mm-hmm. to be essential. Healthcare is a huge industry.
1: So I agree with everything you said, but I actually want to expand upon one early point where you said they were turning a weakness into a strength, which I agree with. But there's another weakness here that they're leveraging even more. We know they're terrible at cloud by comparison to a Google, a Microsoft, a Amazon. So they can't get data. They get their data from devices and apps in their ecosystem, and that's it. Whereas others get data from the web, which everybody uses. Apple doesn't have that. They have Safari and all, but they don't have a search engine. And that is huge, a huge gap. So what do they do? They go out to their edge devices that people buy, and they gather useful information. In your case, you're making the case that it's health information. And I wholeheartedly agree, because I have not yet found a better health, wearable ecosystem than Apple Health and my Apple Watch, quite honestly. So that is another weakness that they're like, you know what? We're never going to be competing with these guys in the cloud. So how do we get data at the user level some other way? And what data do we specifically get? And that's health.
0: Yes. So I agree with you a 100%. So that's where I think if we look at like, hey, what's Apple doing after the iPhone? I think it will be some sort of consumer oriented, medical grade device that helps doctors and loved ones take care of people in the home.
1: Or enhance your health. And I say that because there's every possibility that Apple could come out with its own quote unquote hearing aid with AirPods, wireless hearing aid, that maybe it's a true hearing aid, or maybe it's a personal sound amplifier system, which is non-FDA approved, and it's affordable, it works, it's quote unquote magical, and they enhance somebody's life by doing that.
0: Yes. So that's where that's where that's going, I think. I agree. Feel free to argue with us whenever <laughs> you want. All right. So moving on to something that we'll see where this goes. Lyndon Tibbets, who is the CEO and co-founder of Ift. I talked to him like a decade ago about what he was trying to do here. So he stepped down. And they brought in Chris Kabarian, who is most recently the CEO of Monster.com, to take over the CEO role. So Tibbetts will stay on as If's chief design officer, and Kabarian is described as a turnaround specialist. Hmm. Which this isn't surprising. It has been really like Lyndon started Ift with a
2: wonderful
0: vision. His vision was to basically create a way to interact with digital objects the same way we would interact with physical ones. So his example to me was, you know, if you have a coffee cup on your desk, you can use it as a coffee cup, you can use it as a pencil holder, you can use it as a paperweight, but in the physical world, you see something and you have all these ideas for how you can manipulate it and use it. His idea was to create a platform that allowed you to do that in the digital world. So you could take something that was intended for something else and adapt it to your means. I loved this idea.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a great idea. And what they've done is they've gathered up all these APIs from all these device makers and made it simple to use so that you don't have to be a programmer and, you know, create, you know, a different program for every little thing you want to do. You can just do a very simple trigger event and action, you know, and everything happens in the back end in the cloud. I love it. I'm just wondering, I was not that anybody could see this, but when you mentioned that Kabarian is a turnaround specialist, I had my eyebrow raised because I just wonder from a cash and financial standpoint, how does IFT really continue on? Like where is it making its money?
0: So IFT makes its money from companies like Apple or Amazon or Samsung or Whirlpool. Those companies can create Supported APIs basically, and they put them on the platform. IFT charges them to, you know, manage that. And then they can also get data about like what people are using from it. But it's been pretty hard. And like, I don't know if you'll remember this, but when Chamberlain, the creator of the MyQ Garage Door Opener announced their IFT channel, they actually said they would charge people a dollar for it. Right. Um, A dollar a month. Yeah. A dollar a month for it. And one of the reasons was, you know, IFT's charging them. They want people to really want to use it you know people were upset but
1: <laughs> yeah understandably so because they're so used to just using ift for free number 1 number 2 so it seems like a pay to be included kind of service and by pay i mean the hardware makers you know at some point what if they start pulling out and providing their own you know apps and services and so on and many of them do that i just worry i just don't i love ift but from a business perspective i just question how they will Make money. I just question that.
0: Yeah. Well, in the long term, I think they have a decent revenue strategy. I just think it's hard to get users and people to pay for it. Hmm. And it may be a mismatch between the venture model and what IFT can actually legitimately (laughs) provide. So, you know, we'll also see there. So, because they they
1: did just raise money last year.
0: They raised 24 million. Yes. Now, their valuation was a little higher. So, yay, according to TechCrunch. Yeah. This is one of those areas where I'm not gonna like wholesale freak out, like, oh no, it's going away. But I could see like in six months, if this guy is not gaining more traction, we could see if being put on the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll be it's a great platform for lots of companies. So it would be interesting to see who might buy it and how that would change. I mean, one of the advantages of Ift is that it is not owned by anyone in particular. <laughs>
1: Right, right. If I had to place a guess, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, but I would say it would be Google would be my number one to pick it up if it went for sale.
0: Ooh, okay.
1: There's a reason I'm saying that. (laughs) Okay, and we'll
0: get to that later. I'm Mm -hmm. not going to let you spoiler alert, you guys. Okay, so let's talk about somebody else that's for sale. Osram, which you guys may not know, but they are a lighting company. They make LEDs.
1: I know them because some of my lights are Osram.
0: Yes, they have the Lightify platform is what their platform was. This has been, you know, in the light bulb world, the light bulb world, we've (laughs) seen a lot of spin outs, acquisitions. It's a tough market because the LED shift suddenly turns something that, you know, you might buy multiple light bulbs per year and now you're going to replace them with LEDs and not buy any more. And the lighting guys were like, wait a second. This technology needs us to switch our business model. So everyone was like, services. And then they were like, hmm, that's not working. So Osram has confirmed that it is an acquisition candidate, and they're talking to Bain Capital and Carlyle Group. This is really tough for lighting folks. That's the story about Osram. Maybe it'll go the way of uh, Signify for Philips, which Philips spun out its light bulb division, including the Philips Hue bulbs, into a company called Signify. GE had spun out their lighting division. So who knows? We'll see what happens. And, oh yeah, LifeX was just acquired by Buddy Platform, which is a smart home system. Ah! So crazy times for lighting. We'll see what happens. Alrighty, let's talk about this story. A couple of weeks ago, Nest basically said, hey, you can now use Google Assistant on your Nest Secure system, and specifically the Nest Guard platform. You have to opt in because you're going to activate a microphone on this particular device.
1: Wait, it has a microphone?
0: What? I know. (laughs) So that's kind of how the world felt about this. They were like, they didn't talk about that. And- we talked about that on that particular show, and then last week we talked about it with regards to smart televisions because we went looking for, we were on a privacy-related hunt around smart televisions, and we discovered that it was unclear if certain TVs had microphones in them or not, which we felt was kind of like, mm, not great. <laughs> no,
1: you got to list this stuff in the specs before a customer even purchases it. They don't want to find out afterwards.
0: Exactly. And so Business Insider, kudos to them for calling them out. They sent a media request to Google and basically was like, how come you never told anybody that there was a microphone? And the response they got back was the on-device microphone was never intended to be a secret and should have been listed in the tech specs, the person said. That was an error on our part. You think? So.
1: Yeah. It's just like the conversation we had about smart TVs. If you're going to have microphones, cameras, et cetera, it's all got to be listed in the tech specs up front, you know, front and center so that people know what they're buying before they buy it.
0: Which leads me to this week's newsletter. I am going to write about what I feel like the ideal truth and labeling law for (laughs) IoT devices should look like, and what sort of things should be covered in a company who's selling a connected device, what sort of things they should include as part of that.
1: We've talked about some of those things, but it seems like every several months, we end up adding something new to the list.
0: Yeah. We're like, oh, that Um, felt obvious, but I guess it wasn't. hmm. So- All right. And as we learn more about how companies can use things. So I'm sure this will change. Feel free. If you hear this before, you know, the end of the day, Thursday, you can tweet at me your suggestions of things that should be in there. Maybe, maybe they'll make it in the list. So let's talk about smart circuit breakers. What? Mm. (laughs) Leviton has announced at the International Builder Show a connected smart circuit breaker that ties back to their devices. This is a really cool device. People are very excited about it. I just want to say that this is not the first one of these. Schneider Electric and Eaton, both big makers of those panel boxes outside your home, both have these. Most of them, they're targeted at the industrial space. So this is at the home. In the home market, there's actually a large number of products that try to do energy monitoring for you either at the circuit box, which is complex and a pain in the butt to install, or maybe at the plug level. And some of them just clip onto wires and like say that they can manage all of this stuff and distinguish different devices based on their electrical signature. So there's a rich history of this. But historically, this hasn't caught on.
1: Well, yeah, th- there is a rich history of this, but I think it's been very, it's been focused, I'd say on non-consumer applications and the consumer applications where products have come out for this have been from startups and such. I think this is probably the first big name that I can think of that's going after the consumer here. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be a huge benefit. I also think you can't just have a smart circuit breaker and be expect to have everything go hunky-dory, you need a platform that it works with, and Leviton has that along with a range of other products. So I think they have got the shot to succeed where others have not been so successful here.
0: Okay. My question is, how much does this cost? And we don't know yet. We don't know. It'll be available in the second quarter of 2019. So we'll presumably find out then. Historically, when I have tried these devices out, I have come to the realization that they don't help
1: I was gonna say, what do you really get out of it other than some cool data?
0: So you get this awesome data and you're like, hot diggity. And there are some low-hanging pieces of fruit, right? So you may see a space heater that you're like, holy crap, it is way cheaper to, you know, heat my entire house than using this energy guzzling space heater. So there may be things like that, but after you switch all your light bulbs out to LEDs, after you eliminate the space heater, you're left with things that are hard yeah, to do. Yeah, I already of. knew. Yeah, like your yeah. hot water heater. So one of the advantages is, you know, what I'd like to see is more integration between some of these companies that produce, like Ream, for example, which makes hot water heater. If they can, like, come up with an app that takes advantage of Leviton's, you know, circuit breaker mm-hmm. and automatically, like, lower the temperature when it seems likely to not be needed. There are companies that actually do that right now. Or Whirlpool takes advantage to say, like, when I want to start my dryer, it says, hey, by the way, we're in this kind of demand response situation, don't-
1: Yeah, can you wait 30 minutes? Do
0: you really want to do this now? So there's some options, but those options rely on a lot of integration. They Mm -hmm. rely on the idea that the consumer is going to want some sort of intensive demand response thing. And I don't know if we're there yet.
1: I agree. I don't know if we're there yet. And the utility. I was just going to go there because you're talking about like at the micro level. At the macro level, this could fit in nicely with something we talked about a few weeks ago about, you know, the possibility of Amazon and or Google sort of getting more into the Energy utility space by capturing all the data and suggesting to people maybe hey if you lower your nest right now you know you can save on energy because we're at high demand and at war I think the example was that Google actually did with Nest was during a solar eclipse.
0: Yes, they pre-cooled people's houses.
1: Right, right. They pre-cooled and therefore they didn't spend as much. You know, over time, I think it saved like seven hundred megawatts of power by the several thousand people that were. You know, pulled into this test. So I think it's more of a macro benefit than a micro benefit, but
0: who knows? Yes. And I do think this is where the industry is going. I just don't know. There's always the problem, you know, in the tech world where you may have the right idea, but you just have it too early. So it may be the startups were all too early and the ecosystem is now going to come together around this. But I will say the ecosystem does still need to come together around this for this product to be really worth it to most people. Yep. All right, so let's talk about ecosystems. Libelium, which is one of the first IoT companies I think I've ever dealt with. They are a European company and they basically started out with like these things called WASP moats. They were little LoRa-based networks. It was a sensor network for agriculture, for smart cities, for whatever. And they just announced a partnership with Ericsson that is going to provide NB-IoT Modules that will work with the Libellium ecosystem. So, this actually reminds me very much of kind of the shift that Sigfox was making around open sourcing its network a little bit, just because these are all low power, wide area network providers. And we're basically seeing them try to, like, oh, we've established solutions, we've got customers, we understand this. Let's broaden the number of radios we support or get more people in here. So we can basically build a business.
1: Yeah. And what they're doing, I mean, they're starting out with a developer module that you can purchase. The module will work with NB-IoT, as you said, LTE-Cat-M, and some older GPRS networks, just in case there is no NB-IoT coverage. So yeah.
0: Yeah. So this we'll is just a little piece of news, but I think it's indicative of kind of an opening up in the, mm. the low power wide area network space. So. Okay, and let's talk about Google and its plans to compete against Madam A. And I think this is why you think they might want to buy Ift, or they'd be likely to buy Ift.
1: Yes, assuming Ift were, yes. you know, to go on sale. Yes, I could see Google jumping in there, and the reason being, and I didn't even know about the Ift news when I had this thought. I saw some figures over at Search Engine Land from a couple days ago, and. They reported the number of Google Actions in the US versus the number of skills for Madam A. And it's insane what a difference there is. There are roughly 60,000 skills for Madam A as of January. There are only 4,253 Google Actions. Oh. That is ridiculous. I know Google is competing better in the hardware side. They're selling more Google devices, the home devices, largely due to sales, I would suspect, reduced pricing. But it doesn't matter if you can do more with the Madam A on your own. And I started thinking about this, even though I use Google Home far more than I use Madam A. There's a huge difference though. I went into the apps for both. And it's so easy to find skills for your Echo on your phone. You can go on the web, of course, you can install them from the web and so on and so forth. But you can search for them right on your phone. That's it. The discovery is very good. Not so with Google. In fact, I can't even find in the app where you would enable or look for actions because there isn't a way to do it that I know of. I went through every menu I could find. You have to go to a website and then you enable it from there as well, just like you do with Madam A. So that's a problem. Discovery is just not even there, not on the phone anyway. The other big thing is I started looking at the Google developer blogs versus the Amazon developer blogs. And there's a dedicated one for Madam A. And we've referred to it many times on the show because there's always something to talk about. There's always, we've introduced this new API. We've introduced these blueprints. Here's an easy way to create a skill. There's just a lot of, I wouldn't say hand-holding, but a lot of direction for both developers and non-developers to make skills. Whereas with Google, there's just one developer blog. And I went through every post from the beginning of the year till now. I think I found like two that had to do with google Assistant interactions. It's just not, they're not touting it enough and they're not making it easy enough.
0: This is classic Google. This is what Google does. They're like, we have invented something amazing. We'll throw it over the wall. And if anyone wants to and pick it up, you should be-
1: Developers up. will come.
0: Yeah. And that's, you can they're make not <laughs> the best, coolest thing, but people will not show up if they don't know about it or they can't, even if they see it, people are so busy. Developers- normal people. We're all like inundated with information. If you don't tell us why it matters, Mm -hmm. it's not going to matter. Yeah. And I'm not sure
1: on this one. I'm going to have to double check it, but obviously you can buy or pay the developer for a Madam A skill. I don't know if you can do that with an action on Google. If you can't, and again, I don't know for sure. If you can't, then what's the developer incentive?
0: Right. Well, Yeah. I'm like, well, you're on a cool voice platform, but Google isn't the cool voice platform. There was actually, I think Strategy Analytics just put out numbers saying that their Q4 smart speaker shipments grew 95% to about 38.5 million units. And Amazon Amazon was by far the winner there. So Mm -hmm.
1: yeah, I mean, Google's catching up on the hardware side, but it doesn't matter if you know, those skills or actions aren't there or discoverable. It's just limited utility and people will get bored with the same old, same old, you know, the functionality. That's why Google, I think does far more in creating new functionality. They just added the language translation for conversations on the smart displays and it's fantastic, but But they can't keep inventing everything there.
0: Yeah. And it's, they invent some really cool stuff, but implementing it, that's where they fall down. Like, I mean, I have had so many issues with Google that I'm just like, please, Google, please. Mm -hmm.
1: I think you hit the nail on the head. It's typical Google to just say, we're Google. We'll just make this and people will use it. People will adapt to it. People will develop for it. They can't do that anymore.
0: Not if they really want to get consumers. And in this case, they're not free, right? It's one thing to be like, oh, we'll give you an awesome Gmail product for free. Because email was something people understood at the time. And basically, the big value was like, Oh, it's free and it's searchable. But mm-hmm. here it's a whole new functionality, whole new type of product, and people don't know what to do with it, including developers. So. Right. Okay. I agree with you, Kevin. All righty. Well, we have covered a lot. There's probably that. Well, there is definitely more we could cover, but we're going to stop here and move to our IoT podcast hotline. We have this week's voicemail from John, but before we go there the IoT podcast hotline is sponsored by Affero, With the fifth largest IoT patent portfolio in the world, Affero provides a proven IoT platform that doesn't risk your brand. Affero customers have experienced as much as an 80% reduction in time to market and 10X higher activation rates. Learn more at affero.io. If you want to be entered to win a Wemo dimmer switch, that's this month's prize, or you just have a question and want us to answer it, give us a call on the hotline at 512-623-7424 because we will both enter you to win that dimmer and we might answer your question. So let's go to this week's voicemail from John.
2: Hey guys, this is John in upstate South Carolina. I love the show, a long listener. I have an issue at the house. I have a wheelchair dependent wife and I have lots of smart things. We're Amazon Alexa. We have uh, Smart Things Hub, Wink Hub, Hook Hub, Insteon Hub. But I need a panic button, an IoT panic button, uh, something that I can program to put them around the house. And if she has an issue, if she has a fall or something, she can hit the button, and it will alert, prefer to send either a text or an email to a user configurable list. I can DIY if you guys have some suggestions, but I've had a hard time finding anything that's not tied to a contract. I hope you can help. Thanks for the show. Keep it up.
0: Bye-bye. Wow, John, your home sounds like my home with a lot of hubs, lots of hubs. So we've got options for you, but my favorite option and probably the easiest one to implement is going to be from SmartThings. And provided it stays up, which it's gotten much better than it had been historically, This should be good for you because you can buy a little, you can basically do this with a ZigBee or Z-Wave button. And what you're going to do is you would use the smart apps in SmartThings and under safety and security, you're going to find a notify me when blah, you click through that. You're going to click button, pick your button. First thing you want to do is hook your button into the SmartThings platform. So it shows up and then you have the buttons.
1: And this button's only $15, so you could have these all around the house if you you know, without spending a ton of money.
0: Who makes your button, Kevin? Samsung does. Okay, Samsung Smart Things button. This is in your home. This is not outside your home. They do actually have a smart things button that's cellular powered. Samsung also makes that for outside the home, if that's something you're into. But inside the home, you can just do this. It will send you a notification and or a text. Now. You mentioned sending it to a list of people. There's no function to basically send it to you and then two minutes later, send it to someone else, et cetera, et cetera. If you want to do that, you have to create basically six rules with different phone numbers for each. So same button press will then shoot out six different messages.
1: Right. There might be a way to, if like if you're into programming, there might be a way to create a custom notification method.
0: SmartThings we, does we, do that. I mean, they yeah. will allow you to do that.
1: Absolutely. They are very open when it comes to creating your own device handlers and so on. So that's good. If that's not something that you want to do, totally understand. I have seen some scripts that people put together to do something very similar to what you're asking. So it's definitely possible if you want to invest the time.
0: They do have, they call it the pushover app. So that would actually send notifications to like your device's if you want to go that route, like you spend all day on a computer or something like that, and you want it just to pop up while you're hanging out in your Chrome browser or something.
1: Right. Yeah. Pushover is an API service that will basically turn something into a What looks like a native notification, just like when an app sends you a notification on your phone instead of an email or text, it's that kind of notification we're talking about. So that's possible. And that's very customizable. Again, you might need to do a little bit of programming, but I looked at it and we're talking maybe 10 lines of code and you could probably have some rules that say after two minutes, you know, ping this person via a notification, then this person another two minutes later. That kind of gets out of the simple solution, but, you know, it's doable.
0: So, that is our recommendation for you. You could also do something via IFT, but we didn't like it because of latency and reliability issues. Right. So, that's why we went with what we went with plus cost-wise, you know, you could pop these buttons all over the place. So, there you go. Yeah. All 15 right.
1: bucks. 15 bucks.
0: You can have a button in every room and maybe multiples in every room. So, yay! All right. Well, John, thank you so much for calling us, and you are now entered to win the Wemo dimmer switch. Once again, if you guys want to be entered to win or you have a question, give us a call at 512-623-7424. And now stay tuned for our guest, Tyson Tuttle, who is the CEO of Silicon Labs. This is a chip firm that does all the radios that you know and love inside your home and even some others you may not know about. Hey everyone, we are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Urban X. It's an accelerator for startups tackling difficult problems in today's world. So we have Gabe Batstone, who is the CEO of Context Air, an industrial software company that's focused on transforming the future of work through AI. So let's get this started with something pretty basic. How do you guys envision transforming the future of work?
3: Well, the context error little slice of the future of work is really focused on what we call blue-collar AI, and that means providing technology that supports the people who put warm hands on cold steel, right? These are the people who make our trains roll, our planes fly, and our buildings run. And imagine if we can create an environment where they could walk up to any piece of machinery or equipment and have a digital conversation about when it was maintained, what tools they might need. And so we're going to make those jobs more productive, more safe, and frankly, more stimulating.
0: Excellent. So Context Air is also an UrbanX startup. Can you tell me a little bit about why you participated in the program and what you get out of it?
3: Certainly. Yeah. And it was an interesting decision. My co-founder and myself, Carl Byers, you know, we are not young entrepreneurs, right? We've been in the business of industrial software for a couple of decades, you know, working with heavyweights like Lockheed Martin and Boeing, Schlumberger and so on. And so it wasn't a natural necessarily to go into an accelerator environment. But what we found is UrbanX is so unique and that it's not so much an accelerator as it is a community. And it's a community focused on collaboration with a design focus that really does make you think differently. And so to me, that made it worth considering. And once we had a visit and you you go to Greenpoint, you go to Brooklyn and meet the people and the location, And the association with BMW and something that seemed like an outlier became a no-brainer. It's had a great impact on our business, everything from public relations to networking to just smart ideas. So we love the folks at UrbanX. We love that relationship, and we're proud to be a part of
0: that community. So by making it easier to communicate with industrial machinery, what are kind of the big challenges you're trying to solve?
3: Well, it's funny, the challenges changed from, it seems like only a year ago that I was talking a lot about how do we deal with the end of work and there's not going to be any jobs and Iron Man versus Skynet in the workplace. And that has now pivoted into the global still shortage where now we don't have enough people to work and that's going to cripple the economy. Interestingly, both of those challenges share some common foundational elements of demographic shifts digital transformation and a need for technology to be implemented in the workplace in a way that, again, can make people safer, more productive, and be able to do their jobs quicker. And when you can mesh that all together, you start to then get solutions that not only change companies, but industries and hopefully the entire workplace.
0: And where can people go to find out more?
3: Well, if you want to learn more about Context Air, of course, the traditional hit our website at (laughs) contextair.com.
0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacy Higginbotham, and today's guest is Tyson Tuttle, who is the CEO of Silicon Labs. It's a chip company here in Austin. They do all our favorite networks on the show, Z-Wave, Zigbee, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth. It's fun. They also do other things. So, Tyson, how are you doing today?
2: Doing great. I really appreciate you for having me on, and I'm excited to talk about all the stuff going on in IoT.
0: Awesome. Before we go on, though, I know you guys don't do just radios. What else do you make?
2: Well, we do over half of our business now is in IoT type of products. So we do microcontrollers and wireless connectivity, all the different ones that you just mentioned. But we also have uh, products that go into infrastructure applications like high speed data centers and optical communications and wireless infrastructure, and then a whole bunch of products that go into automotive. So we work in a lot of areas. But what's really kind of cool is that if you think about, you know, where electronics go in our lives, you know, we're working on a lot of the things that are going to be these long-term trends that are going to, you know, kind of transform the economy and the way we live.
0: All right. So let's talk about, again, radios, because that's where I want to kick this off, because that's almost where everything begins. I feel like we're in this weird point in the smart home where Z-Wave and Zigbee feel like they're kind of people are less inclined to use them and people are more inclined to just go Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. Meanwhile, we see things like Bluetooth and even ZigBee pushing into the enterprise and somewhat the industrial world. So I'm kind of like the smart home things and the personal area networks are all moving into these new areas and Wi-Fi is just like everywhere as always. So talk to me about what you see with the future of radios and smart home, maybe industrial
2: Yeah. So if you take a look at let's start with Wi-Fi and, you know, which is the ubiquitous technology that we all have in our homes and in our smartphones and in our laptops and tablets and I guess televisions and other streaming media devices, you know, that's really where it started. And the reason for a lot of these other technologies is because there are some things that Wi-Fi has the challenge with when you have to operate off of, you know, very low power. You know, a lot of the things that we do in IoT are command and control. And, you know, for instance, a door sensor or, you know, a window sensor or uh, something that you throw under your sink to measure water, you know, all those sorts of things. Those have to run off of a battery for a long time. And, you know, they'd like to be off of a coin cell. And that's not really a good application for Wi-Fi. Or you can even think about a door lock. You know, you don't have power in your door lock, so you don't want the batteries to give out very quickly. And so for those command and control applications, these other technologies, in particular Zigbee and Z-Wave, and we're leading providers of both of those protocols, they're really much more tailored to the command and control networks as opposed to Wi-Fi. And another aspect of this, which we can get into, is that ZigBee and Z-Wave, they interoperate with other ZigBee and Z-Wave devices and know how to talk to one another. Whereas on, on Wi-Fi, you typically just hook up to the internet and you know, you're know you talking to the cloud, but there's a robustness aspect to that too. So a lot of the home security systems, for instance, are on the Z-Wave protocol or a lot of the lighting applications. You know, If your internet goes down, you'd like for your lights to still turn off and on and for that to all work together. And so those are some of the reasons why Zigbee and Z-Wave have you know, taken over in the smart home market and in the home security market.
0: So you're saying that Zigbee and Z-Wave are still a big player in the smart home. And I don't disagree with that today, but even at CES, we saw two Wi-Fi locks launch, which I thought was crazy. One's solar powered and one is apparently highly engineered. To do not require a bunch of battery life. So I look at this and I'm kind of like, it's so much easier. I'm not saying Z-Wave and Zigbee will ever go away. I'm just thinking that they'll have a smaller slice or maybe the same slice of an ever-expanding market.
2: I mean, I think that there's room for multiple wireless technologies in the home. We can stay on the smart home for a while. And we've also got Bluetooth for streaming audio. We've also got Bluetooth for a lot of the consumer devices that need to connect to our smartphones. But you also have, there are a lot of, you know, you have 2700 Z-Wave devices available and lots lots of different things going on there. And you have tons of Zigbee devices that are out there, you know, everything from smart plugs to, you know, to the home automation devices and all of that. And then you have the hubs, which are getting created that have, you know, multiple wireless technologies, just like in your smartphone, you have LTE and the cellular technology, you have Wi-Fi, you have Bluetooth for different use cases. I think that there's room for multiple technologies within the home Certainly, as you look at the limitations of Wi-Fi, and we haven't really even started talking about mesh type of technology, where ZigBee and Z-Wave are both mesh technologies, and so the devices can talk to one another and it forms a more robust network, whereas Wi-Fi is typically a star network where you're just talking into the hub. And they're addressing that with some of the, you know, like Eero or... I
0: was going to say, everybody has a mesh now. Yeah, we've got Wi-Fi mesh. (laughs) Maybe all your listeners do. I
2: certainly have that in my house, but that's, you know, not necessarily the way that everybody has things. So, yeah, I think that there's room for both. And you look at the trends. I mean, you know, the number of Zigbee devices sold and the number of Z-Wave devices sold is increasing substantially every year. And also, as you talked about, particular on the Zigbee side, you know, getting into some of the industrial applications as well as Bluetooth. So that's also an interesting trend.
0: I know that we haven't focused much on the industrial and enterprise use cases, but those radios are trying to get traction in that world. What do you think something like Bluetooth needs to really gain adoption in the enterprise or industrial space?
2: For one thing, a lot of industrial applications. And actually, if you look at the preponderance of our IoT business, there are tons and tons of industrial applications, you know, factory automation, smart city applications, you know, in addition to smart home and a lot of this, I mean, you look at retail and you look at commercial lighting and all of these sorts of things. And again, actually in the industrial space, there's an even wider variety of wireless protocols. There's the standards that we've been talking about, but we actually have a substantial proprietary business in wireless that supports a lot of the legacy protocols. And a lot of the companies oh, want like to wireless have- a, heart and stuff? Exactly. Or, you know, clear connect or I think we have, you know, we have over 50 wireless protocols running on our wireless Gecko platform. So one of the things about our hardware platform is that you can run all of these different protocols on it, ZigBee, Z-Wave, Bluetooth and the like. But you can also run some of the legacy ones. And a lot of people want to run, you know, a legacy protocol. They want to be able to update to a more modern protocol like Bluetooth or certainly Zigbee or even Thread. And a lot of times they want to have, you know, where you want to connect to a device with your smartphone directly as opposed to having to go over the network and, you know, to provision or to make controls or to do beacons. There's just a wide variety of applications that people like to use, you know, in the industrial space. And so having flexibility, upgradability, and also multi protocol capability are all things that are really attractive in the industrial space. So, you know, I think you see a trend towards moving towards more of the standards, but also the need to remain backward compatible with the networks that are already deployed. So that's a challenge, but also I think an opportunity in the industrial area.
0: Last week, I wrote about Bluetooth because I think there's a lot of change happening with that standard. It's gone from controlling my speaker with my smartphone or headphones, and now it's just trying to be everywhere to everything, to all people. Talk to me about where you see Bluetooth going and how that's kind of happened.
2: Yeah, I mean, we're definitely seeing strong demand for Bluetooth, you know, BLE, and then the emergence of the Bluetooth mesh technology. And it's in a wide range of applications, you know, from smart home, including the voice assistants, you've got got residential lighting, connected toys, home automation devices, and controllers. You know, smart locks are a good example, you know, where you can unlock and authenticate and home appliances, you know, coffee makers and, and robotic devices. And, you know, you're seeing a proliferation of Bluetooth in a lot of these different applications. And then you also see a lot going on in the China market. We just announced, you know, with Xiaomi, which is kind of the Apple of China, they have, you know, a great ecosystem with the Mi ecosystem. They're selling scooters in the U.S., but they sell thousands thousands of different devices in China. They're working on Bluetooth mesh. And so we've partnered with them and are one of the first companies with a Bluetooth mesh stack that people can pick up and play with and design products for. So a lot of different things going on in the Bluetooth market.
0: Okay. And you guys would be familiar with Xiaomi because the camera, the Wise camera, the $20 one that I know 1.5 million of you guys have bought, that is actually looks just like Xiaomi's camera. So there you go. All right. One of the things that's happened fairly recently is Amazon bought Eero, and we see a lot of bigger companies buying up these smaller kind of startups in the IoT space. I don't think that's weird or anything, but I am curious what happens from a product design perspective and how that affects you know your business. One- It's possible that all your individual customers will consolidate under just a few customers, which doesn't seem great. Or two, maybe they've got better relationships with other chip providers and they're like,
2: see ya, slab. Well I think that in the case of Amazon in particular it's pretty interesting. I mean Eero has been a great partner of ours and the 154 radio in there that runs Thread is one that we've worked on with them and that's a great mesh technology in the home and can be an enabler in a window into all the other devices and then you've got Ring, you know, they came in with the home security system and that was actually Z-Wave technology and natively with Amazon they've got Zigbee technology. So I think that, you know, when you talk about the multiple protocols, those all come together in that way. But it's also you know, the larger companies, while they're going to build a lot of things themselves, I think they're also trying to enable a broader ecosystem of providers and really streamline the interface for people in the home, you know, whether it's a voice interface or getting devices to work together or to provide the gateways and to do levels of integration that any individual company might not make. So I think that it actually opens up opportunity, not just for us to provide silicon into those applications, but actually it will accelerate the adoption of these IoT technologies and make them more accessible for people.
0: So in your position, I feel like you are just right there where you can see what's happening in IoT, the big trends that we should be thinking about going forward. I know probably a year ago, you and I talked about improving security on the chip side for IoT, and I know you guys are doing that with some second-generation products, But and we can talk about specifics around security, but I'm also curious, what else are you guys seeing and thinking about designing in to next-generation silicon?
2: If we're talking just about silicon, security is a big part and it's really getting, you know, payment grade type of security, you know, like what you'd be using with a smart card or the SIM card in your smartphone, but being able to get that at a cost point and to be able to execute that with really, really low power consumption that can be appropriate for IoT devices and then figuring out how to make that standard. So security is absolutely a big part of what we're doing. It's a part of our first gen, but we're doing further optimization and integration on the second gen of products. And then you just look at, you know, as you're pushing silicon technology along, you know, driving power consumption for longer battery life, driving longer range at the same time, increasing the, you know, the memory and the microcontroller functionality so that you can design, you know, some basically you can think about it as fairly simple AI type of functionality. So you can do more processing and do more intelligent looking at sensors and things like that within the same footprint of cost and within the same footprint of power. And so that's what's really exciting about the next generation silicon, as well as just being able to have it work over an even broader range of applications.
0: How do you think the world would change or the technology industry would need to change if we actually wanted to build an internet of things that had more local control and maybe a lot less data going up to the cloud?
2: Our focus is primarily on the devices at the very edge, the sensor's end node devices that we all think about as connected. And we also work at the gateway level to make sure that they're all talking to one another. But if you talk about the limitations at the very edge, in many cases, I mean, if you think about the tens of billions of IoT devices being deployed, you're not going to run a wire to every one of them. And so you end up with a substantial number of these devices with fundamental constraints on the amount of power. You talked about a a door lock with a solar cell or something like that. And energy harvesting is one way, but it's really hard to guarantee 100% of the time that that works and so you're stuck with the little coin cell batteries or things like that and you don't want to replace them very often and that's a fundamental you know limit as to you know the trade-off between the battery life and the amount of processing that's done and so that's why we've had just a tremendous focus on being able to integrate more memory more processing power you know more clever sensor interfaces and ways of communicating more efficiently so that you can maximize the functionality within given energy footprint. So I think at the very, very edge, there's a lot of innovation going there. And, uh, you know, as well as innovating around use cases and the partitioning of the processing that's there and at the gateway and how much gets up to the cloud. So I think there's a huge amount of innovation. I think, you know, the wireless protocols also kind of play into that a little bit as to, you know, to the extent that they can become more spectrally efficient or you can drive, you know, further optimization of the power consumption at the wireless level. That that also opens up a little bit more opportunity as well. But the architecture you know, within the data center and in the cloud has made huge strides. But as you push that further down, it starts to look a little bit different.
0: All right. Well, Tyson, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
2: All right. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. It's exciting to see what's going on out there.
0: That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week.